0: Um, Our New Testament reading is from Mark chapter 4 verse 35 through chapter 5 verse 20. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, Jesus, uh, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, you do not care that we are perishing?' And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, "'Peace, be still.' And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, "'Why are you so afraid? "'Have you still no faith?' And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The word of the Lord. We are studying two very famous stories
1: about Jesus this morning. Um, It's the story of Jesus calming the storm and also the story of Jesus healing a demon-possessed man. And you might be wondering why we are putting them both together. Why Why preach on them both at the same time? And it's because if you read the story, they both happen very close together. They both happen in a very short span of time. In fact, they're on a very small trip across the Sea of Galilee. If you wanted to compare it to our lives today, it'd be like going out to the camping on the Harbor Islands or something for a night, which I haven't actually done, but I know people have done that. And you go, you go out there, it takes, I don't know, 30 minutes or something. How far away is the Harbor Islands, Jeremy? 45 minutes, you camp out there for the night, come back. Jesus is doing that with his guys. They take this short boat ride and they come back seemingly the next day. But in that very short span of time, Jesus manages to give the disciples a masterclass on what it means to follow him. And so when these guys return back from the other side of the sea, they have come back with a completely new knowledge of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so today, that's what I want us to do. I want us to try and go on that journey with them and to see what we have to learn about following Jesus from these two stories. And so this morning, whether you have been following Jesus for decades or whether you're just considering that this morning, uh, this is a passage we need to hear because it shows us what following Jesus really means, what's actually involved with it. And there are three main things we see. First That when you follow Jesus, you will go through difficult circumstances. You will be in strange situations, and you will experience terrifying realities. You will go through difficult circumstances, strange situations, and terrifying realities. And maybe you're saying, well, that doesn't sound so great. (laughs) But before you uh, think that, let's just look at this passage and see why those are actually extremely beneficial things for us. Um, So first off, here's what's going on in the story. Jesus and the disciples, they hop in the boat. It has been a long day of teaching, and Jesus is exhausted. Uh, He's a regular guy, and he's tired, and so he lays down in the stern of the ship and falls asleep. And all of a sudden, a windstorm comes, which I read this week is something fairly common on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. So there is this phenomenon where uh, a windstorm will just kind of suddenly come, and it can be pretty extreme. And we know this is an extreme storm. This is the kind of storm that you should be afraid of. I don't spend a lot of time sailing. I have never experienced this myself, but uh, I do occasionally get to fly. And if you ever have flown on a plane, you know that sometimes in the air, you'll hit some turbulence, and the plane will get a little bumpy, and I am, I am an extremely nervous flyer. And so when that stuff happens, you know, I like I grab onto the armrests and I'm like, you know, clinch up and I hate it. I can tell you this is the truth. But I have learned that the best thing for me is to look at the flight attendants. Because if the flight attendants are calm, I realize there's nothing to worry about, right? If the flight attendants seem like they're okay with it, I feel like this is probably normal. But if they're looking like they're panicking, then I feel like I need to panic. Well, here we are in this boat and the fishermen are panicking. They are extremely worried, right? They're saying, we are going to die here. And so they wake up Jesus. And when Jesus wakes up, he turns around, and it tells us in verse 39 of chapter 4 that he says, peace, be still. And the winds cease, and there was a great calm. The word there, it says there was a great calm. In the Greek, it says a, a mega calm. Right, the storm doesn't simply stop; everything stops. If you ever saw that movie, The Truman Show, that came out, I think in the late '90s or something, it's a it's a Jim Carrey movie where uh, basically all of his world is a TV show, and he doesn't know it. And so when he starts to figure it out towards the end, he tries to sail to the end of the world, you know, to get through the set. And the producer of the show makes the waves turn into this giant storm to try to stop him from reaching the end. And the 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 boat is getting turned over, and it seems like he's about to die. And so finally, the producer says, okay, stop, that's enough. And all of a sudden, the storm ends, the sun comes out, and it's a beautiful, pleasant day within the span of like 30 seconds. Well, it's that times a 1,000 here with Jesus. It says there is a mega calm. That not only does the wind stop blowing, but the sea is tranquil. It's like glass. And he tells the guys, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In the span of just a few moments, these guys had a pleasant boat ride, turned into one of the most extreme trials that they would ever face, and then into one of the greatest lessons about Jesus that they would ever learn. And this is a lesson that the church has continued to learn from for over 2,000 years. And so really quickly, I just want to bring out four things we can take away from this short story. One, pretty simple, Jesus lets his disciples go through storms. Following Jesus, it doesn't mean you're going to have an easy life. And maybe that seems obvious. Maybe it seems like I shouldn't have to say that. But you know, there are a lot of preachers that have made a lot of money and have built a large following by telling people that it is Jesus' desire for you to prosper. That Jesus intends to make you rich, that he wants to make you comfortable, and that all you need to do is just believe. Well, the Bible tells us a very different story. Christ does not keep his people from suffering. In fact, What we see here is sometimes he allows us to go through suffering that is so extreme, that is so difficult to bear, that it seems like you are surely going to die from it. And you know, I don't know if I need to even elaborate on that anymore. Because if you're a Christian in this room, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We all go through storms in life. And if you haven't yet, you will. That's the first thing. Jesus lets us go through storms. Secondly, those storms reveal our theology. Now, this is true for everyone. This isn't only true for Christians. When those storms come in our life, they show us what we really believe in. In those moments where it feels like everything is falling apart, that's when we find out what we truly worship. Those are the times where we end up finding the answer to the question, what or who do I think is going to save me? Right? When things are falling apart, that's when we turn to the thing that we believe will save us. And it's in those moments we find out our true faith. So when you're there, When you're suffering, when you're struggling, do you cry out to Jesus? Or do you cry out to something else? Do you say, you know, do we cry out to money? You know, save me from this situation. Hard work, save me from this situation. Addiction, distraction, escape, save me from this situation. To these guys' credit, they cried out to Jesus. They said, Jesus, wake up and save us from this. The storms. Uh, also reveal our dependence. If you uh, have read the story of the Old Testament, maybe you recall this as after the Exodus, the people wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but finally they make it to the edge of the promised land. And as the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land, Moses stands up and gives them this long speech, which you can read in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses warns the people there. He says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand. Have gotten me this wealth. That speaks to a core reality of our state as human beings. That when we are comfortable, it's easy for us to believe in our own self sufficiency. When things are going well, it's easy to believe that we've done it all and that we're in control. I think this is probably one of Boston's biggest idols. One of the biggest problems in our culture, because we are a city that is filled with a lot of smart people, a lot of creative people. And statistically, we have a disproportionate number of young people. But even if you're one of the not-so-young in that crowd, we are all likely to live in the illusion of our control. But the storm is a remedy for that the storm can cure us of that problem quickly. All it takes is a phone call from a doctor or the news that someone we love is sick or dying, the loss of a job or really anything, any situation that is outside of our control. Those storms remind us that we are dependent creatures, that we are not really in control of anything. Like Jesus says, we can't add a single hour to our lives. Our self-sufficiency is the delusion. It's something that gets produced by our sin. So the storms, Jesus lets us go through them, and it shows our theology, it, it shows our dependence, and lastly, the storms show us our Savior. See, the glorious thing about this little event about this storm is in the end, the guys come out uh, with a new knowledge of Jesus. Even though they had a really small faith, even though they woke up and exhausted Jesus when he needed to sleep, even though they freak out and they panic, they come away from the storm knowing more about the power of God. They're astonished by his power. They realized that he had been in control the whole time. And that's the way it is for anybody who's in Christ. That's the way it is for all of us in Christ, that that, that he is with us in our storms. And just ask any Christian who has been through it lately, they'll tell you it's in these times of struggle, in these times of dependence, when we end up seeing our Savior most clearly. Those are the times when we feel his presence in our life. Not as much when we're we're thriving, but when we're suffering. That's when we grow in our understanding of his love and his care and his provision for us. So that's the first point. Following Christ, following Jesus, often will bring us into difficult circumstances. But if he's with us, we don't need to fear. Secondly, we see here that Following Jesus brings us into some strange situations. Now, I know uh, in this room there are some people who are thinking about Christianity. People who are just now kind of opening the Bible for the first time and reading through it, trying to find out if it is true. And something that can happen when we read the Bible that way, one of the, the kind of negative consequences of the way we're taught to read is that we can end up approaching the Bible, firstly as a critic, firstly as a judge. You know, you read the Bible and you come across something that you you don't immediately agree with, and you say, ah, I don't really like that. And you start to tense up, and maybe you don't pay as much attention. And you start to dismiss things before you've really understood who God is. And there's a Psalm that talks about this, uh, Psalm 50. It's a song that the church used to sing. And in that song, God talks about his relationship with the wicked. And he talks about these different offenses that the wicked have committed against him. He says, You hate discipline, you wink at sin, your mouth is full of lies, you slander your family. And then in verse 21, he says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. But you thought that I was one like yourself, and now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge against you. The thing that makes God finally speak is he says, you thought that I was one like you, and I'm not. God tells us in Scripture that he is not like us. We are made in his image, but he is not made in our image. And that means, uh, that means pretty simply that sometimes our instincts will not match up with God's will. One of the most common traps that we can fall into is we can assume that God's ways will be basically the same as our ways, right? That God wants basically the same things that we're going to want. But why would it be that way? Why would. God agree with you 100% of the time. Is there any person that you know in your life that you agree with 100% of the time? No, right? So if we have a real God who is perfect and holy, two things that we are certainly not, of course there's going to be times when we are at odds. We are going to find things in Scripture that will surprise us, We're going to find things in Scripture that also often will rub us the wrong way. Say, I don't, that's not the way I would do things. And that's a little bit of what's happening here in our text. I think that is the case for these guys when they reach the other side of the shore. They come to realize that Jesus' plan is not their plan. This is not the way that they would have done things, right? This is a group of Jewish men who have come from a predominantly Jewish area, and now their rabbi has taken them across the sea, and they have landed in a Gentile area. They have landed in the part of town you weren't supposed to go. This was the home of the unclean people. This was the home of the people that if you touched them and got around them, it was going to affect whether you could go to worship at the synagogue. And not only that, but where do they end up? Did you hear it in the story? They're at a pig farm. (laughs) Think about the most repulsive place you could possibly be. They end up at this pig farm. And uh, one pastor, uh, speaking about this passage, he was kind of speculating on what maybe these disciples would have been thinking. Maybe they're like, well, I don't know why Jesus wants to go to this big Gentile area. But then they see this giant farm, and they see these 2,000 pigs, and you realize... Lots of pigs means lots of money, and so maybe they're thinking, oh, well, we'll come and we'll we'll get a wealthy, maybe like a wealthy Gentile convert to help our cause. And as they're thinking through that, all of a sudden, you know, Right? (laughs) This guy jumps out. He he runs out from the tombs. His body is covered with cuts. He has shackles hanging from his wrists. Luke tells us that he's naked. And Jesus says... That's why we're here. <laughs> we're just going to talk to him, and then we're going to head home. It's crazy, right? We shouldn't put, push past this, though. You know, when I was in seminary, there was a book that uh, was really popular. And it was about how to start a church and how to grow your church. And in it, it, it pushed this idea that it called the homogenous unit principle. And what it said was basically this. It said, if you want to start a church, well, you need to recognize that God has made you a certain way to reach a certain kind of people. God has given you a certain set of interests to reach people with those very same interests. And it said that if you look to those people who look just like you, well, then this is a surefire way to build a church fast and grow it quickly. Well, you know what? That's garbage. (laughs) Here is what Jesus thought about the homogenous unit principle. He said, let's get in a boat and let's sail across the sea and let's find a naked demon-possessed man and minister to him. Let's find a Gentile and share the gospel with him. And I just want to say, if we are a church that is following Christ and we never find ourselves in these kinds of strange situations. If we are a church following Christ and we never find ourselves with people who aren't like us, in places where we feel uncomfortable, if our worship service is only tailored to the things that we like and make us feel good, if we're not trying to reach out to outsiders, we should ask ourselves some hard questions. Well, as the passage goes on, Mark tells us that this man was possessed by a demon, and not just a demon, but he says his name is Legion, and that is a, a military term that could mean up to 6,000 men. And I just want to make a quick note on this, the demon stuff, because we've been talking about demons and demon possession. It's come up uh, quite a few times over the, the last few chapters of Mark. And I know that can be a little off-putting for people in the 21st century right you, you hear this and maybe you're thinking demons you know, really do we believe in demons like is that something um, and I just want to talk about it for one second you know there is no philosopher in the world who will tell you it is they are able to disprove God there are, even the greatest philosophers will say well we have to leave it open to possibility and in fact, most people believe that that is a very real possibility. Most people statistically around the world believe that it is likely that there is a God. And so just think about this logically. You know, if, if it is possible that there is some kind of personal, spiritual, good force in the universe, doesn't it at least also seem possible that there could be personal, spiritual evil? In the universe. You know, the Bible says that's the case. But if that's a huge deal for you, if that's you know, really distracting to you, I've thought about this a lot this week. I'd love to talk to you about it more afterwards, but I don't want it to distract you from the main point of this passage. What I want us to see here is that Jesus has crossed the sea to redeem this man's life against seemingly impossible odds. Jesus, with a simple word, Defeats an army of thousands. Jesus casts out the demons, and they go into 2,000 pigs, and those pigs drown in the sea. And while that part of it's a little bit unique, I'll say Jesus is constantly doing this kind of work, even today. He is, even right now, calling men and women from death to life. And he is calling unlikely people. He is calling people who seem totally and utterly and impossibly lost to himself. And he does it in ways that confuse us. (laughs) He does it in ways that seem strange to us and ways that surprise us because his ways are not our ways. So if we are following Christ on this mission, he's often going to take us into some strange situations. He's going to take us to places where we feel uncomfortable and to people who may surprise us. And finally, he takes us through terrifying realities. Did you notice in both of these stories, in the story of the calming of the storm and in the healing of this demon-possessed man, did you notice how the people responded When they saw Christ's power, they were afraid. In both cases, they feared, right? In the boat, these men, they're terrified by the storm. They're crying out in panic. They're worried about that they're going to die. And then it says that Jesus calms the storm. And then what happens? Well, they're even more terrified. (laughs) They're even more afraid than they were in the first place. They say that it says that they were filled with great fear. And they said, who is this? That even the the seas, that even the winds obey him. And then, in the story of the demon-possessed man, it doesn't end with this guy being healed. It tells us that when those pigs run off into the sea, the pig herders go out into the town. And you know, they're probably pretty upset. (laughs) And they go and they rile up the people and they bring them back to Jesus. And maybe they came back angry, But it tells us in verse 15, and they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. When they saw what Jesus has done, it says they begged him to leave. You know, in the moment where you might have expected them all to fall down and worship, they said, please go away. Leave us alone. In one sense, they're not much different than the demons that were in the man. They see his power and they react with terror and they say, please just leave us alone. And you know, I think they were right. That was an appropriate way to react. Because standing in front of them, was none other than the second person of the Trinity. Standing in front of them was God the Son in the flesh. That's why the winds and the seas responded to him. Because they recognized his voice. They knew it was the same voice that in Genesis chapter 1 had said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. This was the living word of God, the one who created the sea. The reason that the demons trembled was because they knew who he was. They knew that he was the righteous one who had come there to destroy evil once and for all. And you know, if any of us were there, If any of us ever stood in the presence of this kind of holiness, of this kind of power, of this kind of perfection, we kid ourselves if we don't think we'd react the exact same way. I mean, just just think about when you're at the gym and that extra fit person starts working out next to you, right? Don't you become kind of painfully aware (laughs) of all those not so fit places on yourself? Don't you start thinking about, how far you fall short of them. Imagine in the case of of perfect holiness, in the presence of a powerful God, wouldn't you become painfully aware of your own weakness? In the presence of a holy God, wouldn't you become painfully aware of your unholiness? How could you not fear? How could you not suddenly remember all that grime in your life? all those inner secrets, all those thoughts of envy and lust and pride, all those things that you worship that aren't God, money and sex and power, how could you not be afraid? Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We would be right to be terrified because the Scripture tells us all those things all that unholiness, all that sin has won for us the wrath of God. Some of the things we just talked about, the way that we are faithless amidst our storms, the way has, has won for us the abandonment of God. The way that we fail to love our neighbors and to love people who look different from us has brought on us the anger of God. But notice here, there is one person in this story who is not afraid. Right? Who is it? It's the man who's been healed. His picture is a lot different. We see that he is clothed. He's in his right mind. Presumably, he's been sitting at the feet of Jesus while these pig herders ran into town to gather all the people to come back. And when the people get together and when they start to beg that Jesus please go away, it says this man is begging to go with him. He wants nothing more than to stay in the presence of Jesus as long as he possibly can. So what's the difference? Why is this man not afraid while everyone else in the story is? Well, could it be As some scholars suggest, could it be that this is the first true convert in the New Testament? Could it be that this is the first man to understand what it means to be dead and to be raised to a new life in Jesus Christ? See, it is not enough for us to see the power of Jesus. If we do, all it's going to do is make us afraid. All it's going to do is make us want to run away. It's going to make us want to hide under our chairs when he shows up in the room. We can't simply observe the power of God. We have to experience it the way this man experienced it. John Calvin, the great reformer, says that all of us are like this man. We may not be tortured by the devil, he says, yet he holds us all as his slaves until the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Spiritually, every single one of us is naked, torn, disfigured, and we wander about until he restores us to our right mind. And how does he do that? How does Christ deliver us? Well, it's not just by showing up and showing us his power. It's not by making us afraid. It's not by showing us our lacking so that we have to beg him for mercy like these townspeople. No, it's the opposite. It's by putting himself in our place. It's by taking that wrath that we deserved. Think about it this way. The next person that we're going to see in this book who is naked and bloody, who's bound, will be Jesus. And Jesus didn't just dwell among the tombs, but Scripture tells us He died and was laid in them in order to purchase our freedom. See, the message of the gospel is that Christ on the cross took our place of torment so that we could have his place of power. And when we follow Jesus, the first thing we have to do is we have to come through that terrifying reality of our sin. We have to recognize our need for judgment. But in the midst of that moment, in the midst of that conviction, His Holy Spirit speaks to us and it says, if you repent and you turn to me, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He has set us free from the law of sin and death. And I want to just say, you know, if that's you this morning, if you feel that bondage in your life, Why not cry out to him now? Why not ask him to break off those chains and set you free? And the very last thing I want to say quickly as, as I close. It does seem a little weird how this passage ends. Right? The people come and they beg him to leave and Jesus basically is like, okay, see you guys later. <laughs> he walks over to the boat. This was a good trip. Let's go home. You We've know, got place of things to do tomorrow. But I want you to see there is something really special happening here. Maybe you've picked up on this, but in all the chapters that we've read so far, whenever someone meets Jesus and comes to see who he is, how does Jesus respond? He says, shh, be quiet. Don't tell anybody. Don't let them know. But with this guy, he says what? He says, go. Go. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And it says, he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Jesus leaves, but through this man's testimony, the good news begins to ripple throughout the society. At the end of these verses, Jesus is not present bodily anymore. But I'll tell you what, He is very much on the move in this town. And you know, when we meet Jesus like this, when we come to the place where we relish our freedom from sin, where our minds have been transformed by the power of His Spirit, He's going to move here as well. When we know what it means to follow Christ, even in those difficult circumstances, even into strange situations, we find that Jesus moves powerfully through the testimony of His people. Let's pray. Lord, uh, it is an amazing thing to see Your power and authority over all of creation. And it's an amazing thing to remember how you have taken that power and used it to free us from our bondage to sin. And yet, Lord, so often we stop there. We don't become like this freed man. The good news is not on our lips in the same way. Lord, we are quick to forget what you've brought us through. Father, would you remind us today of that freedom? Lord, as we come to this table and we receive again the gifts of your grace, would you give us joy? Would you send us out into the neighborhood? Would we share our story? And Lord, would one day, would this city marvel at the greatness of our God? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.